Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. This episode takes a bit of a different spin. Now, I've spoken to a lot of business owners on this podcast who have talked up and down the importance of making key senior hires to help you get to that next stage of growth. But today, I actually get to speak to one of those strategic hires. Tina Youngblood has a knack for flipping businesses. With a PhD in accounting and over 20 years experience in results-oriented operational admin, Tina is CEO 2.0, who comes in to fix and grow flagging businesses. When she took over the helm of Pathfinder, a SaaS company offering software to therapists helping patients with autism, She told the board of directors it would take seven months to turn the company around. Sure enough, seven months later, the board came knocking and told her it was time to sell. This is the story of how, without any prior SaaS experience, she turned over the business and sold it for an impressive multiple of annual recurring revenue. This is Tina Youngblood. Tina, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm, I'm really keen to unpack your story and, and get some of your insights. Um, I, I will say it's, it's a slightly different take for this episode because typically speaking, we, we do get the, the founder or the owner, and, and it's you know, that little bit of experience. So it's as, as somebody in your role who was kind of brought in to, to help the owner, I, I think we're going to get some different perspectives on this process, which I'm really looking forward to. Me too. I'm happy to share my story. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So let's, let's dive in. Yeah, cool. So look, I know we're going to get to talk about Pathfinder Health Innovations and of course what you're doing today, but um, maybe you could just kick off for us a little bit and just give us your background. Like, you know, what did you do? What did you, you know, you studied and done different things? What, what kind of led to that sort of part of the journey that we're going to talk about? You know, I'm, I'm that uh, crazy person that has a PhD in accounting, um, which most people, when I say the words PhD and then accounting, I usually get cringes when I, when I say that. Um, I wanted to be an accounting professor. I love to teach and I enjoyed it. I did that. I was relatively young. I went straight through school, undergrad, MBA, PhD. I went to, to teach at Miami of Ohio and uh, got tenure. And was relatively young when I got tenure. And so then I was like, okay, now what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I got an opportunity to go to work at PricewaterhouseCoopers in New York um, for a wonderful, two gentlemen, actually, two wonderful gentlemen who became great mentors of mine. Um, They offered me my, my dream job in the middle of my sabbatical, left academia, traveled the world for them, 
for about three years, uh, putting out fires for the CEO, which was one of my favorite jobs of all time. Then the CEO retired, became the CEO of uh, Zurich Financial Services, third largest insurance company in the world globally. I was lucky to be one of the two people that he took with him. So I lived in Switzerland for two and a half years. They brought me back to the United States to kind of do that whole thing all over again. And it was a turnaround. So a financial and cultural turnaround is kind of where my career begins. Um, and it's followed me and, and has, has been part of my journey ever since. But that took me to wanting to be a CEO. And I knew I wasn't gonna, that wasn't going to happen, uh, given the hierarchy and, and all the players. So I got an opportunity to run a claims company, and I did that. Then I got an opportunity from there to run a reinsurance business, but it was very niche and it had a lot of venture capital aspects to it. So I did that. And then I wasn't having fun anymore. Um, this is part of my journey that I always tell and, and, and people relate to it probably as much as anything. I was burned out. I wasn't having fun. And I decided to just take a break. Um, and I went on sabbatical um, for a year and promised myself I wouldn't go back to work unless I could respect the people I worked with and for. And I wanted to live a purpose-driven life. And, I, and it sounds like a cliche, but it was 100% how I felt. So I took that year and about 11 months into that year, Pathfinder found me. Um, so Pathfinder Health Innovations is a software development company and they build software for therapists who treat people on the autism spectrum. I had a younger brother who passed away at the age of 20, but he wasn't supposed to live until 12. And he was a just a special needs baby. Um, we didn't know what autism was when he was born. But when I found out and I started to learn about it, I realized he was likely on the spectrum. And so all of those pieces kind of came together and I got an opportunity to do something really different for me, which is run a software development company, which I'd never done before. But at the center of our universe was the person on the spectrum. And so all of that kind of came together. Um, I'll tell a quick, quick story. When I interviewed with the chairman, with the board of directors for the company, the chairman said, you've never run a software company before. What makes you think you can run this one? And I said, well, the first time I ran an insurance company was the first time I did that too. So, you know, I know five or six things. I know what I don't know. I know how to surround myself with smart, talented people who have complementary skill sets. I do know how to ask pretty decent questions because that whole accounting background thing. Um, I'm very honest and transparent in my communications. I challenge the status quo. And I know that culture is everything. And those six things are industry agnostic. If you live by those rules, it applies no matter what you're doing. And they picked me over an IT guy. So, so who, <laughs> who, would, who would ever think that would happen? But that's kind of what, what uh, took me to Pathfinder. That's awesome. That is so, uh, there's so many things that you've just shared with us that I can, I can relate to. And you know, from a sense of purpose to to why um, you know a typical industry player is often the best person to actually come in and shake things up. So um, that's that's really cool. Do do you think that element of of your brother, um, you know, 
cuts through a little bit and gives you that extra sense of purpose around around a particular company and role? It, it really does. You know, as I said, I helped raise him. I was seven when he was born. And there's something about, and, and you know, there are things you do in your 30s or whatever when you're building your career and, and you're just, you know, you're reaching for that next thing. And then there's a time in your life where you go, hang on a second. I want to make a difference. I want to be part of something. He's always been with me. Um, and and he's taught he taught me grace and patience, you know, unconditional love like you can't even imagine. And it may sound weird, but I've taken those characteristics and those traits and applied them to every team I've ever led. Um, you know, one of my my greatest teams I ever led, different company, it was very, very eclectic. They were very different personality types. But when we came together, we would argue, we would debate inside the boardroom. But I had a rule, and that was when we leave here, the thousand people that work with us are going to see us holding hands and singing Kumbaya because we are a unified management team. And a lot of that comes from, you know, just like I said, love, mercy, and grace. And and so I took that with me everywhere I went, and I, and I still take it with me. And yeah, there's something about that part of my life that when I share that story, people go, that explains certain things, you know, why I approach things a certain way. I always try to use more carrots than sticks, as the saying goes. Um, and I truly believe that if you can rally people around a common goal and a common purpose, um, and whether that be teaching a child how to tie his shoes, which I had to, to do, um, or, you know, finding the next cure for cancer, it, it, all, it all relates. No wonder you're such a good leader, Tina. I, I, yeah, I just think that's, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm a massive believer that culture beats strategy every day of the week. You know, it's, you, you, get, yeah, you get good people and give them a common goal and they respect each other, they'll do amazing things. Um, and frankly, almost as a leader, you can almost, if you manage to pull that together, you could almost just get out of the way and let those amazing people do brilliant things because, yeah, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. That was my that was my job. I felt like um, is to remove obstacles, and I would tell the team that I'd be like, "Okay, you guys know the business better than I do. You know what needs to be done. My job is to move, remove obstacles, get out of your way, but get others out of your way, right? And take those things on, whether it be the board or whatever outside influences. Yeah, my job is just to let you be, go be brilliant uh, and support you. That's a big piece of it too." especially when you don't know anything about how to write an insurance policy or how to write code. You know, I haven't, I haven't written computer programming code since like COBOL or something, which was a billion years ago. So yeah, so that's a big part of it is just listening is a big piece of a, being a good leader, I think, and empowering your people, holding them accountable, sure, but empower them and get out of their way and remove their obstacles from, from their path and, and let them go do great things. Yeah. No, that's very cool. Um, so, so just to give some context for for the listeners, Pathfinder you mentioned was a software company, but can you just give us a you know high level for the uninitiated type thing? What what did the software do? Like, and and who did you sell it to? Yeah, so the software did two things. <clears throat> One, um, it allowed. Well, we sold it to our customers were 
behavioral therapist. So applied behavioral analysis therapy, ABA, is the only therapy that's been scientifically proven to help people on the autism spectrum. So that was our customer. Our bread and butter customer was that small mom and pop, you know, fewer than 50 employees that had a clinic uh, or taught or, or in a school and helped people in the spectrum. And it did two things. It helped them file their claims with insurance companies. So we had a, we called it practice management. It's, it's typical in software um, language, but practice management was the piece of the software that helped them file the claims with the insurance company, manage the accounts receivable from the insurance company, and know when they had some issues that they needed to deal with. And the reason I put that first is because actually my chief technology officer said to me very early on in, in my tenure with Pathfinder, he said, if they can't collect the money, they're not going to be in business very long. So we feel like that's probably the most important part of the software, which I thought was brilliant on his part. And applied behavior analysis therapists, ABA therapists are not typically high tech, you know, high savvy. They are hands-on people. So that's the biggest part of what we did was we accelerated their receivables collection. So we had this, this whole practice management piece. On the clinical side, the clinical piece of the software, would, they would, were allowed, they were able to collect data and data comes in the form of skills, acquisition. You know, again, you, you set out an, a development, an education development plan for a person on the spectrum. I'm going to teach you to wash your hands. I want you to be able to tie your shoes. Those kinds of things, you break it into 10 steps, whatever. And the clinical side of the software would allow the therapist to collect the data, graph it, show progress, which then helped not only the, the, the person, the, the client, but it also helped the therapist prove to the insurance company that it worked and on this cycle continued. So that's very high level what, what the software did. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. I've, I've never heard of anything like it. So it's, um, yeah, that's really fascinating. Can you give us a sense of how big was the company by the time you sort of took over and employees? I don't know if you can talk about turnover and things like that, but just, just a, a, I guess, a sense of the size of the business. Yeah, so I can, since it's been sold and and uh, been absorbed, I'm, I'm sure I think I can talk a little bit more than I would have been able to a couple of years ago. We had um, 30 employees, so it was very small. Um, it was about a $2 million top line business. What was interesting about it, it was the first to actually have the integrated solution. So the market for this business is very fragmented. You've got clinical providers, you've got practice management providers, but there were very few that had an integrated solution where you didn't need two systems to run your business. Um, and ours was one of the first to market that was integrated. So again, small 30 employees, a couple million dollars in revenue, uh, but potential to really be so much more because of that integrated solution that we had. Yeah, interesting. And and so I presume the model was 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 it a SaaS kind of model, you know, monthly subscription style style business? Yeah. So the typical SaaS, it was interesting. The clinical part of the business was separate from the practice management. What created Pathfinder was the merger of two different businesses. So the founder of the clinical side 
merged with a bit a founder of the practice management brought the two businesses together so when i took over the clinical side was very much a typical SaaS um, subscription model we were we were tiered so you know one to ten employee one one sorry one to ten clients this price you know 11 to 25 this price so we that was clinical the practice management module when we when we um merged was a percentage of revenue collected pricing model, which was very unique. And ultimately we abandoned it because it, you know, it didn't work. Um, ultimately wasn't profitable, but that was what, what, that's what I walked into was sort of percentage of revenues collected. And then on the clinical side, it was number of patients or number of clients and it was a tier pricing model. So pretty typical SaaS on that side. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, I, I want to get to in a moment, like what you needed to do when you came on board, like what were the focus and what were the changes you made and et cetera. But, but as I guess as a little kind of lead into that, can you give us a little bit of context about, I guess, the business owner, um, you know, leading up to that role? I mean, I don't know how, how long the business had been going, but was the owner still involved in the business? You know, what was their kind of, I guess, thinking and headspace and, you know, I imagine this is a bit of a shift, right, in terms of the company's history and, and trajectory. Yeah, so the founder, the, the owner was still part of the business when I was brought on board. Um, he was part of the selection process. I was actually his first choice, which, you know, he and I are still friends um, and, and we had a lot of conversations about where the business was what he saw as his own limitations in taking it to the next level, what he thought I could bring to the table. So yeah, he was still part of the business when I came on board, um, but recognized, he did recognize that he wasn't going to be able to take it to the next level. And that's why he led the search to really find his replacement in the sense of a CEO. Yeah, okay, okay. So had the business kind of, I don't know, plateaued or was it experiencing some challenges or something like that by the time they, they, they were talking to you? Yeah. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's probably not going to be news to any of your listeners uh, that the board told me four months in, they wish they'd found me a year sooner, you know, or two years sooner. So the, the business had plateaued and was suffering actually from um, a decline in revenue because the software was having latency issues and some other issues that were causing customers some headaches. Um, and when you're dealing with HIPAA and when you're dealing with, um, you know, a, a business where when you're dealing with insurance reimbursement and Medicaid was often a big piece of that, you need to keep data for 10 years. And if your data is somehow, um, you know, mismanaged is not the right word. Corrupted is probably the right word. If somehow the data gets corrupted, you, you have a big mess on your hands. And we had both of those issues. Part of the reason we had those issues was because the, the founder, the owner, believed that in a software company, and this is true in a lot of SaaS businesses, every two weeks you issue a bug fix or a new enhancement or something to change the software. And what we were doing was every two weeks putting new pieces out there or enhancements out there 
without ever stepping back and looking at the overall architecture. So bugs were added to bugs, were added to bugs, which caused some issues. I had customers in the, my first 30 days call me and tell me that they were looking at the circle, they called it the circle of death, you know, the spinning wheel. <laughs> and one of my clients was like, I've got the circle of death. Um, and, and it was obviously, it caused us, and we, we did have a data issue. Um, no, no client data was lost. I mean, was breached, meaning no, no personal information, but we did lose some, some data. Um, and you just, you can't, that is the kiss of death in a software company, especially one that's an, you know, um, a, a medical record, right? An electronic medical record. So there, there were lots of other challenges. I'd say those are the two biggest ones that caused the board to go search for um, a new CEO. I'm curious because I, it sounds like you've had a little bit of experience by the time you get to Pathfinder in, in doing um, sort of turnarounds and, and solving, clearly solving problems. I mean, when you come into a company like this and you can see that there's some real issues, um, what are your first steps as a CEO? I mean, are there are they standard things that you now do because you're used to doing turnarounds or is it more specific to that company? Like, what, what do you do when you're looking at a big pile of challenges? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> challenges is a good word to go after that pile of. Um, <laughs> so uh, because I have an accounting finance background, I mean, I think the very first thing I do is look at the financial statements. That's to me, it, it comes natural to me, it comes naturally to me because I do have an accounting background. But the very first thing I did, well, I did like five things simultaneously, right? I love when I get the question, what keeps you up at night? I'm like, it's 30 things that keep me up at night. Tonight, it's these three. Tomorrow night, it'll be these three. But I knew I needed to look at the financial statements first. And so that's kind of number one. You know, 1A would have been, calm the fears of the people. Um, you know, so getting the cultural aspect right, understanding what the culture was. So I met with, you know, all 30 employees, half of whom were in Phoenix, Arizona, the other half were in Kansas City, where I am. And I made a point to talk to everyone. And I started every conversation with everything is, this is Vegas, right? Everything stays here, number one. Um, and then I said, you, we're in a, pretend we're in a Clint Eastwood movie. It's called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, start with the good, because that's very important. Tell me everything that's good. Tell me what's bad. And if there's something ugly, let's get it on the table and help me you know, figure out what it is. And so I'd say financial statements, number one. Number two, absolutely needed to understand the culture. I met with every single employee. I had detailed conversations with them. And number three is I assessed the talent. One of the things I promised the board when they offered me the role as I said, in 30 days, you'll have what I consider to be an assessment of the business. In 60 days, you're going to have a talent assessment because I think that's the most important thing. As I said before, if you surround yourself with talented people who complement themselves and you, uh, things, good things can happen. One of my comments I made to the board when they interviewed me was financial models don't turn companies around. People do. Right. You know, models don't turn companies around. Spreadsheets don't don't turn companies around. People do. So 
I'm going to give you an assessment of the people. And then in 90 days, I'm going to give you my 12 to 18 month um, plan as I see it today. And I think that's that kind of big picture strategic plan fits no matter what I've done. And there are nuances, obviously, depending on where you go. Sometimes the talent's not an issue. You know, sometimes the finances are fine, but there's a cultural issue, which is harder to do. Um, but yeah, those those three big pieces are are what I consider to be my going in game plan when I'm again CEO 2.0, right? I'm not I'm not the person that that starts it. I'm the person that hopefully helps it grow. You know, fix and grow is my favorite thing to do. Um, the fix part's the hard part, and then the grow part's the fun part. Yeah, cool. I, I, I like it. I really like it. When you came in. Did the owner, the founder, and the board, the, the the key, I guess, people you were talking to, did they tell you that they wanted you to kind of repair and build and prepare for a sale, or was that kind of not really, it was more just a fixer-upper? You know, what's interesting about that is it was a fixer-upper. Um, and when I presented my 90-day, when I, when I was at my 90-day mark and I presented to the board, go, it will take 12 to 18 months to turn this company around. You know, here are the big buckets of work we need to do. And, you know, along the way, we're going to, you know, we'll continue to have conversations. I'll tell you where we are. It's 12 to 18 month turnaround. And then we'll talk. Um, (laughs) And then the CFO and I got really busy and, uh, promptly in seven months had taken $770,000 of run rate cost out of the business. Wow. Um, We had, we had, we had, we had plugged the dike for all of the technology issues we were having, you know, so we, we stopped the bleeding on the software. First thing I did uh, technology wise is I stopped them from releasing new, new um, products every two weeks to every quarter. And I said, we have to get our act together here. We're going to do quarterly releases. We'll do bug fixes all the time, but we're not doing anything major until we know this is a complex piece of software. So I went to quarterly releases except for bug fixes, took $770,000 run rate cost out of the business and was in the middle of my talent um, oil change, <laughs> I would call it. Because uh, there there was some definite needs that that uh, in the talent area that needed to be addressed, and the board came to me and said, oh, "Well, great, good job. Let's go sell it." Do, do you think that was in the back of their minds already when they hired you? Look, you know, hindsight being what it is, Simon. You know, yes. I mean, if you go and look at all of my resume, it's turnaround, 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 turnaround. So there's no question that it wasn't you know, my, my clever, uh, comment about taking on a new challenge that, that gave me the role. It was probably because they knew that I had investor connections, venture capital connections, private equity firm connections because of places I'd been before. And they'd seen some of my turnaround results from building, you know, from my teams, not me, but from the teams that I had led. And I'm certain it was in the back of their mind when they hired me. I was just naive enough to think I had three years to do it um ended up i have it like yeah like 12 months but it was good that's interesting i i wonder if they uh you know it's just purely hypothetical but i wonder if they didn't 
raise it. I mean, there's probably lots of reasons they didn't raise it because, you know, you've got to solve the most immediate problems anyway. But um, but I wonder if that was a, a concern that they might scare off a new CEO that, hey, actually, this is not going to be a long-term gig or, or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's just fascinating. I would love to have uh, been there to ask questions and, and see where their thinking was at during that process. It, uh, it'd be interesting. <laughs> it would be, yeah. And, and then, and I love both of them, highly respect both of them. That the two of them, as I as I reference, were the two biggest investors in the business. Um, yeah, respect them and and appreciate their 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 angle. You know how they looked at the business, their support of me. One of the things I would say um, that doesn't always happen when you've got, especially high net worth family office, you know, investors on your board. The level of support that I had from the board was unbelievable. I mean, I knew that I could make any decision I needed to make. And if I could justify it, I knew that they would support me um, in those decisions. And that was a big, a big piece of it. Of course, when they told me they wanted me to sell it so soon, I did have an, you know, sort of a, oh, shoot moment. Like, <laughs> you know, kind of, I'm kind of having fun here and I, I love my people. And you know, I'm I'm seeing the turnaround in them, and and it's, this team is gelling, and I, all that stuff was so fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty clear that I was brought in to fix it and sell it, and which we did. Yeah, interesting. What's your first step? So you get this mandate, you've got to go sell now. Um, I'm I'm curious about this process of selling, right? Because it's it's there's always I think similarities in in what a transaction looks like but i find that every deal is always different because of the people and the company and the you know just the general sort of process even the timing so what, what did that process look like how long did it take where did you start like what uh yeah can you talk us through it a bit yeah sure um i'll start with we had been approached by i want to say three at least three private equity firms in the space prior to my arrival or right after I arrived. And we said, no, thank you, because we weren't ready. Um, so so I kind of had at least three players that I knew were interested and that I had a better story to tell, you know, eight, nine months in than I would have had uh, on day one. So I had a little bit of a head start there. I also had, as I said, I had a pretty decent network of private equity connections that I had just made in my, you know, over my career. And I, I used those relationships to just do, if you're not interested, you know, it may not be in your space. Can you introduce me to somebody that might be interested? So, so that was kind of part of the original or our first step was, all right, now what do I do? Um, our largest competitor, you know, who I beat my head against a wall every day, um, to try to win was one of those parties. And I said, absolutely not. Um, you know, I did not want to sell to our largest competitor. I didn't want to give in. Uh, and I, and I was like, no, I, I want to beat them. I don't want to sell to them. So, so I, I started with, you know, again, two or three that I knew were in the space and wanted to be in the space and had approached us before I took two or three connections that I had made made a couple of calls, had a couple of conversations, put the competitor on the back burner 
And then I went, I didn't you know, one of the things I did because we were a small company, and I think this is important for entrepreneurs and, and small business owners. You know, the first thing that, that some advisors will tell you as a business owner is you need an investment bank, you need an attorney, you know, you need all these consultants. And I told the board, I don't need any of those things. I do need an attorney. I need a really good attorney. Yes. To save me from myself. But I don't need an investment bank to tell my story. I know this company. It's a small company. I'm good. And when I began to start to do due diligence, as potential suitors would, would you know, send their attorneys to talk to me, the very first thing I would do is take their 21-page due diligence list and go, no, I'll, I, ch- I cut it down to two pages, and we are an, but, but we're an open book. So part of what I live by is transparency, honest communication, and everyone that knows me knows that. So anyone that was literally or, or you know, actually in the game knew that there were going to be no skeletons, there were going to be no surprises. So I didn't spend a ton of my investors' money on investment bankers. I managed the attorneys, which I think is an important part of the process too. Because if you don't, the attorneys will manage you. Manage <laughs> you. Yeah. yeah. And then there'll be no money left at the at the yeah. end of the transaction. So so and and then as I began to have conversations, I think in the next part of the uh, the next step in the journey was again going back to culture because culture is everything. I wanted a good cultural fit. The the thing that kept me awake at night the most in the early days was saving those thirty people's jobs. That was my goal. My goal was to obviously serve the best, uh, get the best deal I could for my investors, but I was hoping to save as many of those thirty jobs as I could. Um, and so part of what I did was I took my chief technology officer with me on, on, in meetings, I put the sales team in front. I put, you know, I I took people that knew the business and I made them part of the conversation and cultural fit became, that's how I narrowed the list down. It became the factor where I said, not a good fit, not a good fit, good potential fit, good potential fit. Um, and, and that was, that was an important part for me. Wow, I, I, I I've got to pause you there for a second because I've got too many questions. <laughs> um, just quickly, um, okay. So just go back to these first couple of people that you were speaking to. You said that they were in the space, and I I guess my brain was ticking through, thinking, were they in the sort of health clinician space, or were they in the software space, or was it both? Interesting. There, it was it was a little bit of both, but it was software first. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so so there are, are many. Um, there are a lot of private equity firms and a lot of private equity owned firms that are either in healthcare software um, or in healthcare investing. So part of my narrow down the list exercise was you're in addiction or acute care or hospitals, you're not, you're not going to want to buy this thing. So the, the, when you start to narrow down to get further into that niche of behavioral health care, which is what ABA therapy is, and understanding the space of SaaS, that's, that, those were the, the two you know, that crossed um, that really told me I had 
good potential buyers. Because, you know, if you don't understand that and you don't have to know who the clinicians are, although that helps, um, but you can, I could educate, my team could educate on that piece of it. But, you know, if they were big, if they were a Cerner or, you know, a big, big player in electronic medical records, they don't want it. If they were in hospitals, I didn't even bother because we would have never fit. Um, so it was finding those niche behavioral health care. And then SAS was probably the, that was the the most important factor was that they understood software space. Yeah. And that, and that, you know, you basically answered by my next question was that I, I just, I, I think certainly in my experience, SaaS companies tend to be valued differently from a traditional business, you know, and, and, I'm, and we can get to valuation in a moment, but I just think if you're buying businesses on traditional multiples of EBITDA, often they kind of are perplexed. I still find myself being perplexed by how some software companies sell and buy what multiples and how much, et cetera. So, so I think that that understanding of SaaS is, is a really, really interesting piece of this puzzle that, that, that I'd love to pick up again in a moment. Um, my next key question, you know, you talked about not having investment bankers and stuff like that, which which I I understand, but I I'm curious because you you mentioned that you came to this with a bunch of contacts, experience, exposure to this kind of stuff already, and I'm curious about how much, um, you know, as the CEO, I mean, I imagine you've fixed a lot of problems, you've got these teams humming, you're probably less grind operational, you're more strategic, so. Did it take a lot of time for you then? Did you start dedicating a lot of your time to this process? Um, whereas, you know, if you'd hired an investment bank, you'd probably expect them to do a lot of heavy lifting for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's 100% right, Simon. It, it, because we were small enough, um, and again, I, I knew where all the bodies were buried, so there were going to be no surprises because it was a pretty straightforward um, transaction in that regard. But yeah, I was... 100% strategic. Um, again, I, I was looking at cultural fit where I thought I could get the best deal for my customers and for my investors. And, and I spent most of my time in that, you know, I was in the trenches of the deal, um, but I was not in the office, you know, going to stand up every day. And we used the agile methodology and stand up was part of something that I went to every day. And Till I was in the middle of, of this. So yeah, I stayed really out of the operations. I trusted the team, especially my CFO who was a rock star, but I trusted the team to handle the day-to-day. -day. I had, I brought into my confidence a couple of people that I knew I could trust to say, look, here's what we're doing. Um, and I knew I could trust them. And I depended on them to keep the business humming um, and the team happy while I was out, you know, on roadshows, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I can imagine. Um, third question around that, all of this, you, you mentioned bringing certain staff in, and I'm, I'm fascinated by that because, um, you know, as a, I hate rules of thumb and all this sort of stuff, but quite typically our approach with a lot of the transactions we do um, in fact, it's one of the most common questions I get is, you know, when do I talk to my staff, you know, and, and when do we talk to other people and do we have to talk to clients and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's this communication piece wrapped in secrecy that, that kind of makes people nervous. And um, I guess as a general rule, I, I, I'm usually saying to my clients, don't tell anyone who doesn't need to know. <laughs> like, really, you just keep it under wraps as long as you possibly can. 
And every business is a little bit different, but at certain times, particularly if the company's larger too, um, or if there's specialist skills, you may need to dial in a particular employee or, or more than one employee. So, um, but it's such a delicate thing. And, and of course, there's always this risk of once you start putting people up in front of buyers, there's, there's elements cease to be in your control. And I don't know, there's this, this, this kind of makes, I think this stuff keeps business owners up at night as well. So just curious, you know, you, you brought people into the mix. What was that like? And what was the thinking behind it? Yeah. So I, by the way, I support your view hundred percent. I mean, in a larger, in a large company, you don't tell anyone until you absolutely have to. And I'd say even in this case, except for the CFO who, you know, your CFO knows everything. Um, the only person I brought under the tent was the chief technology officer. And, you know, and, and he, he was a smart cookie. Um, and, you know, you, I'm probably not a great poker player, though I think I'm a decent poker player. Um, and so when I miss something that I would normally not miss, uh, but I, I, you know, I brought him in, but I, that was way after this was, the, I did not bring him in until I knew we were going down a good path because I agree with you. The last thing you want to do is scare everyone. And, and that's exactly what would happen if you didn't have your story completely tightly wrapped. So I told the whole team after I had signed the LOI. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so it was my CFO and the chief tech. That was it. You know, when I say I brought people in, it was those two people. Um, and I trusted them with my life. I mean, I, I, I would literally say I could tell somebody, one of those two, here's where the body's buried. And they would say, okay, got you covered and got bail money for you. And, and so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you have to, and, and as I said, there's a point at which you, it's, it's good because there's a good story to tell. So I told everyone when I'd signed the LOI, I'd chosen the buyer. I could, I could say 20 things that were positive about it. Um, and that's when I, that's when I opened up, but no, I agree with you hundred percent, even in small companies, you know, so I had two out of 30. So there you go. There's your relative percentage, but, um, you have to be careful. Uh, and you're right. That's something that keeps you up at night is when, how, you know, at what time. And, and I've had the opportunity to, to do this a couple of times. And so that was a lesson learned and that, uh, that I brought with me to this transaction. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it is such an interesting piece because it's um you can't predict how people are going to going to react and you know I I, I you know we're all on a bell curve right <laughs> pick an issue we're all on the bell curve somewhere and I I've seen everything from at one end of the extremes is staff think the sky's falling on their head and no matter what you tell them they think this is going to be bad I'm going to lose my job or something terrible is going to happen. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who go, ooh, acquired by a larger company. This is going to be a great opportunity for me. I'm going to be able to do more stuff, and this is going to be cool. And they just kind of, they're right on the front foot with it. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who kind of go, ooh, never done this before. Well, I'll just kind of wait and see. Um, so I, I'm always sort of interested in how your team might have reacted. And then, and then how does that kind of feed into post-transaction integration, you know, all that sort of other good stuff. Oh, yeah. By the way, 
even with 30, you're right. It's still a bell curve. <laughs> yeah. You know, 100%. Um, there were people who knew that they would have a limited amount of time left to CFO being number one. Yeah. You know, we were acquired by bigger business. He knew that. Um, but he, he's, you know, he's a professional and he, and I said, are you, I will take care of you. Do you trust me? And he said, yes, I do. And that's a big part of that. You know, it was only, you know, 18 months for me in total, but I established a, a, a relationship of trust with those people from the very beginning. That is so important. I mean, it's so important. So when I said, do you trust me? Yes. Okay. Then I'm going to tell you what I can tell you. And you're going to ask me questions and I'm going to say, I can't answer that. And that was part of the, the conversation too, is I don't know. I can't, I, or I do know, but I can't share that with you right now, but you have to trust me. And so um, I didn't have too many people who well, I had a couple that were, again, the bell curve is 100% right. I had some that were just like nervous beyond belief, right? And the conversations I had with those people went something like, you're talented, you are employable. If you want to go look for a job, I will be a reference for you because I get it. I think you've got a career here. I think you've got potential, future potential here. But if you don't, if you don't want to take that risk, I get it. Get your resume together. Bring it to my office. I'll walk through it with you. I'll help you and we'll find you another job. That that takes their fear away. Right? Then those that go, all right, cool, let's do this. I was like, okay, you need to just be patient until I've signed the on the dotted line. Well, I'm going to introduce you to this person and this person and this person and this person. And, and you start thinking about what do you want to do? Yeah. Yeah. What, what would be fun for you? How do you want to do it? And then we'll build a career path for you inside this larger organization. It's going to be awesome. And then those in the middle who said, okay, I'm just going to play this out. You know, those are, you have those everywhere. And those are just your, those are your good foot soldiers. Those are your people that are going to still show up. They're going to do what you ask them to do. They're going to do their jobs. They're going to take care of their customers. And you're going to do your best as a CEO um, to take care of those people um, by pointing out their talents, making sure that that they're on somebody's radar, you know, when you're when you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. It sounds like you handled it really well. Um, OK, a cu couple of quick rapid fire questions. Then I want to move on to kind of what you're doing these days and, and where you've moved on, because obviously you've, you've moved on from Pathfinder. But um in terms of months, how, how long did the sale process take from you being given a mandate to closing the deal, you're making a public announcement? 15 months? Yeah. Give or take. And that is a really good thing. I hope any of the listeners hearing this who are thinking of selling, you need to keep that kind of time frame in your mind because that is normal. You know, I always say to our clients, you've got to give me at least 12 months. Like, in fact, if I get it done earlier, happy days. But if you're not thinking a solid 12 months in your mind, and I've had deals that have gone to 18 months and even a bit longer than that. Um, but yep. yeah, you need to allow yourself enough runway to get through it, find the right buyers and get the deal done. Find the right buyers, number one. And then number two, even when you find them, something is going to happen. It totally. is in 
inevitable. And when you think you're done, you've got 90 more days. And, <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, and it's so it's, it, yes, it, it was a, I would say the same thing to anyone. I would go, you know, you think you've got the right buyer in three months? Add, add at least six to whatever you think uh, and maybe more. Yeah, it's funny because I've had clients who are talking to us about us helping them with the process and they go, oh, well, I've already had somebody approach me. Like, you know, like half the work's done. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like somebody's tapped you on the shoulder. These guys could be wasting your time. Like you've done 0.01% of this process. Like, you know, you've found a potential buyer. whoop de doo <laughs> Like it's so it much is, more. It is true. And then what you don't, what the other part I think that's important there's only so much of it that's in your control. Yeah. Right. So you say, Oh, I signed all the, I signed everything. I completed the due diligence. I filled the data room. I did it all. And then you're sitting there, you know, doing this because your potential buyer has an emergency board meeting and they changed their strategic direction and yanked the funding that was going to buy you. That actually happened to us. Totally. We, we had COVID hit, right? I mean, how many deals we had going and the amount of guys, and whether it was private equity or an industry buyer, who'd go, sorry, we can't do the meetings this week. We've had to have a crisis board meeting about some other issue. And it's like, fair enough. Like, it's not their fault. They don't want to do that stuff. They don't want to deal with drama. But at the end of the day, what might have been a two-month due diligence process for some of them took five months. You know, just, yeah. just it was out of our control. So so I think, yeah, really important for anyone thinking about a transaction to <clears throat> to... Play the long game. Don't get overly anxious. Understand that deal fatigue is a real thing and you need to manage yourself through that process so you don't become too tired or too frustrated. Um, so that's that's definitely one of the big takeaways. Um, once you got the deal done, um, Tina, how long did you hang around um, after that? Longer than you would think uh, that would be normal because I ended up selling to my largest competitor. <laughs> yep. After I met, so so what's interesting is my biggest competitor and I lived parallel lives. I was seven months ahead of him, give or take, six months ahead of him. So I was brought in to replace the founder. He was brought in to replace the founder. He was a SaaS guy. You know, I was not a SaaS guy, but he did exactly the same things that I had done just six months later than I had done them. So when I, when he, he came to Kansas City, he goes, please just let me come and meet you. <laughs> Fell in love with him immediately, you know, in that culture is everything to him. You know, he's a, he's a transparent, honest leader. He surrounds himself with these, you know, with talented people. He's got a great heart and he knew everything that was wrong with the business that he took over, which was everything that was wrong with the business that I took over. So we actually laughed and he said, you're six months ahead of me on that. You know, and you're only three months ahead of me on that. And so we had this great conversation. And I went, fine, you are the perfect buyer. Um, so I, they asked me to stay for one year and I signed a, an, an agreement. And it was really a transition, a transition agreement. But what was really cool about it was about halfway through that year, he offered me a permanent position and I'd still be there today. Um, I would still be there today had it not been for this other opportunity that came around because he he wanted me on his team. You know, he valued what I had done at Pathfinder. And what he discovered when he looked at the market was that the Pathfinder product he bought really 
was our bread and butter, as I said, was sort of the very small business side of the house. The product that they that my competitor had, Central Reach, served the largest side part of, of the industry. So he goes, Will you just run the small business practice for me? I'm like, so I get to basically do the same thing I did before, but I didn't have to deal with COVID. And in fact, as COVID hit right around this time, and he told we'd have, you know, we'd talk every week and and I'd say, man, I'm glad it's you and not me. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no offense. I'm so happy I'm not the CEO right now in all this mess. But uh, yeah, so it was a one-year transition, which I think is probably pretty normal. Yeah. And then yeah, I was just lucky enough that, you know, he asked me to stick around and and I did. And and so I got to see the whole transi- transition and, and integration come to fruition, all those people whose jobs, I saved 25 out of 30, by the way, which was maybe our, our greatest accomplishment. But I got to see all of those people in their new roles with their new bosses. I continued to mentor them through it. You know, I'd get calls and I'd go, hey, he's a good guy. You know, this is your new, bo- I, I've met with him. He's a good guy. Try this, try that approach and help them through that, that bumpy integration part. So um, yeah, it was really cool. And again, if, I, if this this awesome new thing hadn't come along, I'd still be there. Yeah, cool, cool. Final question, and then let's let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today. But um, I, I don't know if you can share the 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 actual valuation or what the business sold for. But can you tell us? Are you able to share um, how the company was valued? Like, was it a multiple of EBITDA? Was it a multiple of revenue? How was it kind of structured? I can't reveal numbers, but I can tell you it was a multiple of revenue, ARR, annual recurring revenue. Yep. Um, so, which is pretty typical in, especially a startup. We were eight years old, but still in, in, in software years, we were still considered a startup. So it was a multiple of ARR, annual recurring revenue, with a retention trigger to it. So there were, there was a, I think it was 18 months. I think it was 18 months. So w- w- the, when we inked the deal, we got some cash up front, which again is pretty typical. So we got some cash up front. Um, and then we got um, an, an, a kicker based on an annual recurring revenue retention rate. So if we, in the, in the during the integration, convinced the customers not to leave, to stay with us, because again, we were competitors before. So there was a lot, this is a very small community, by the way, the uh, therapist community is a very small one, very tight knit. And there were some of the therapists who loved us and hated them or loved them and hated us. And with absolutely zero empirical evidence to support their feeling. But part of our job in that, that 12 months post the deal close was to keep as many of those customers as we could. Um, I actually liked that approach. I love, you know, get some cash up front that shows that they're, they believe in us, but then they really kept us on the hook. And I thought that was a really good way to do it to say, here's your annual recurring revenue today. If you keep some X percent of it, you get this. If you keep a larger percent, you get a kicker. And, um, and so that really gave the team, you know, a, a 12 month project. And because of the six to 12 month subscription renewals, it, it, went out to about 18 months yeah yeah and uh, and for what it's worth i i I agree it's a that's a good metric if you're going to have some kind of performance 
metric around you know the the consideration uh, i've seen i've seen burnouts and things like that fail miserably because they've become overly complicated Fr- frankly at times i've seen what i believed was buyers intentionally trying to make it complex so that they would have lots of wriggle room to get out of pain um I, I don't think most people are like that at all um i think most people just want to see success and think see things work but you know having something around retention it's 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 manageable right you can engage those clients you can control it you, you can't necessarily manage the margin because they can put all sorts of expenses through your business and your p l but yeah retention i mean that's that's manageable controllable and simple it's um i, I like it i think it's a good idea I liked it too. And, and I will say this too, because I think it's important for your listeners. There were times when, you know, as the seller, I was dealing with the buyer's finance team or the attorneys or whatever. And I would just go, you know what? Time out, pencils down. And I'd call the CEO directly. And I would say, do you and I agree on the intent? Yes. Will you trust? Yes. And so he and I would say, he'd go, I'll take care of it. Or I would say, I'll take care of it. Because it, it's so easy for those kinds of um, over-engineered, you know, uh, super complicated, ridiculous metrics, because you've got, you know, finance and quantitative people that love that stuff. And so sometimes the CEOs have to stay all time out, get on the phone, agree to it, and then tell their people to go paper what they just said. That saves months of time. And I'm telling you, I don't care how big or how small you are. I truly believe it. It's happened at least two or three times in my career where you just got to go pencils down. I'll be back. And, and, you know, the the two business owners, because at the end of the day, you know, you're the business owner, it's your business and the business buyer wants to buy the business. They don't want to buy your customer list. They don't want to buy, you know, just your talent. They, they really want it to work. And so um, that's my last little thing is make sure sometimes if you need to just call time out, the two CEOs get together, they agree on it. Then they tell their team to go make it happen. And that, that will speed up the, uh, the process quite a bit. Brilliant advice. Absolutely brilliant advice. You know, it's, I, I've, I've seen you do, you talk about technical people and then throw in the mix that with, you know, a bunch of lawyers who, and don't get me wrong, I've seen, we're all on a bell curve, right? I've seen fabulous lawyers and terrible lawyers and everything in between. But, um, you know, in, in actual fact, anybody listening to this, you know, if you, if you are going to do a deal, having a lawyer that not just does lots of transactions, but they have a very commercial approach to them, like it's not about winning little micro technical debates in every single clause of a contract. It's actually about trying to get the right deal done. And if you get a very ego-driven person who wants to win every argument, your deal's going to fail. And uh, and I've, I've seen situations, like you said there, Tina, where the two CEOs or owners have just had to go, hey, let's just take an honest, upfront commercial approach to this. Like, as you said, what is the intent? What is it that we're trying yep. to achieve? Let's make sure the words reflect that. Um, so, yeah, brilliant. Really, really good advice on that. It uh, not only could save deals, it could save a lot of money and time. So, um, so that's cool. Thank you. Thank you. What, what an experience. I mean, I just, you know, what a wonderful journey. And it's, um, I, I just think there's so many amazing um, tips and insights there for people who are going to think about their own exit. Um, so, so tell us, you know, where, where did you go after that? Like what, what happened after? So Central Reach, you did your time there. And, and now I think you're at Technology Acceleration Partners or, or Tech Excel. 
Yeah. So opportunity came to um, jump into the animal health and agriculture innovation space, because why not? Um, <laughs> it was really an opportunity. It's a Kansas City based company and um, it, it has the who's who of Kansas City investors behind it. And it was another one of those really unique things where a job was posted that I was my second favorite job I've ever had, other than being the CEO myself. My favorite job was the right hand of the CEO. That's when I've had where I've had the most fun. That job was posted. I applied for it thinking nothing's ever going to happen. Um, got through the interview, you know, made it to the top, whatever. Um, and then about six months in, they started talking about a co-leadership model and made me chief enterprise officer at the end of the year. So what we do is we take, we find technologies, innovations, novel breakthrough science in plant science or in animal health. We take our investors dollars and advance that science. And then we sell it to a strategic or um, a venture capital firm. And the co-leadership model is probably the coolest thing I've ever done. So the founder is, and the president, founder and president still here. He's in charge of all things science. And as chief enterprise officer, I'm in charge of everything not related to science. So it's a really cool partnership model where I get to hang out with, you know, uh, senior research entomologists and, and, you know, molecular biologists and all kinds of things. But I don't have to actually know what they do um, because my job is, you know, investor relations and, and uh, actually capital raising, fundraising, um, and all things not related to the science piece, but everything else related to the business. So it's, again, one of the coolest things I've ever done. Um, and I really value it and respect the founder quite a bit. So we make a really good team. We make a good partnership. That's really cool. I, I've had the, the pleasure of working um, in a company where we had brilliant scientists. Um, and as more of a commercial sort of uh, market-facing kind of guy that I've always been, I, I, I loved being able to go to market and talk, talk up these people like, hey, like, you know, hey, I'm here to have the conversation, but like, these are the geniuses and wow, like I'm, I, I was proud of it. I was excited to be able to go and talk about what they did and why it made us different and how it impact, would impact our clients. And, you know, it, it comes back to, I think, what you said at the very beginning of this interview, right, is being surrounded by really smart people who hopefully are pretty cool to work with and, you know, frankly, you know, hopefully smarter than, than myself anyway, or certainly my situation. So, um, Definitely yeah. smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, I have a PhD in accounting and I'm the dumbest person in the room. I always laugh about it because like they've all got PhDs. That's nothing. And so my my <laughs> my piddly little PhD in accounting is like whatever. Um, <laughs> but know, it is funny. it is really it is so cool. And and to your point, I love to kick off a conversation with a potential suitor for one of our products and go, here I am. I don't do anything if that's any fun. Let me introduce you to Candace and the team. And then they start talking about you know, the mid intestinal gut gene of a lepidopterate. And I just go, and I just sit back and smile because it's fascinating to watch and to watch scientists go at each other and then have one of them have an aha moment. You can literally see the light bulb go off over their head. Um, you know, but it's, it's, you know, and it's mission driven too. We're trying to change the way we feed the world and save the planet at the same time. Everything we do is 
sustainable and non-GMO and all those fun things. And so, yeah, I'm continuing in my my desire to to live a purpose-driven life. It's great. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, look, congratulations on everything you've achieved. It's um, you, you've obviously had an amazing career. You've you've no doubt had enormous impact on a lot of people's lives. And you know, I think uh, when we're all lying on our deathbed one day, I don't think we're going to be thinking, "Geez, I wish I made more money," or "Geez, I wish I ticked more boxes." It's going to be, you know, "Hey, geez, I wish I had more time with those people," and and you know, being grateful for the sort of impact that we've been able to have on other people's lives. And so, you know, clearly you've you've done some amazing stuff. So, congrats, congrats on everything you've done. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate it, and I appreciate your time. This has been a, a ton of fun. I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, look, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing, and I'm, I'm really um, appreciative of, of it all, and uh, it's, uh, you've been wonderful and gracious. So thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing, and uh, look, hopefully uh, we can get you on after the next stage of your journey and hear what else happens. My pleasure. Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> stay tuned. Let's talk again. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.